Our text is found in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, and so I invite you to take your Bible and turn there with me again, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. This is our fifth Sunday in this text. Uh, Lord willing, we have one more to go. We'll finish uh, next Lord's Day. Our analysis, our study of these verses, uh, I do pray you have them memorized by now. And I pray uh, they are embedded in your thinking. And I pray that you'll make use of them. And that they will be sweet to you. And that the Lord will bless them to you uh, in your sojourn as we all seek to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in the Lord Jesus. And so here we go again. Romans chapter 8, and I invite you to follow along as I begin reading in the 28th verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In verses 29 and 30, we find what the English Protestant reformer, uh, William Perkins, called the golden chain of salvation. The golden chain of salvation. Five links in this golden chain. God foreknew us, that is his people, that is link number one. God predestined us, that is link number two. God called us, that is link number three. God justified us, link number four. And the final link, God glorified us. And so these five acts of God constitute this golden chain of salvation, an unbreakable chain in which I find my security as a Christian. We've been working our way backwards through each of these links. And so we began with glorification. We then moved to justification. We then move to calling, that is effectual calling or special calling. And then we move last Lord's Day to predestination. And now today we wrap it all up, we finish with election. Yes, I say election. You're thinking to yourself, but that's not what it says. It says those whom God foreknew. Well, I'm going to state it right at the outset. As far as I'm concerned, that expression, God's foreknowledge of his people, is simply a synonym for election. Now, as with the word predestination, the word election elicits a multitude of responses, reactions, from sheer horror, disdain, dare I say disgust, all the way through to pure delight, pure joy, 
pure satisfaction and contentment, and everywhere in between. It is, again, like the expression predestination. Election is a term which is able to comfort some, and yet at the same time absolutely annoy others. It is a controversial term and has been at the center of controversy throughout the history of the church. And so I want to begin by repeating the three observations I began with last Lord's Day concerning how the Bible approaches the doctrine of predestination. I think that's a good place to begin. With these three observations, remarks concerning how the Bible approaches this subject. Because if we're going to get anywhere with a subject like predestination, if we're going to make any progress with a subject like election, the safest place to begin, the platform upon which we must begin, we must build, is how the Bible handles these subjects. And so here they are again for what they're worth. Three observations. Number one, the Bible never, ever argues about the doctrine of election. Never argues about it. It simply assumes it. And it simply makes assertions, affirmations concerning this doctrine. Second observation is this. The Bible reproves, corrects, those who want to argue about the doctrine of election. I sent you there last week. I'm going to send you there again. The ninth chapter, look quickly at verse 18. Still in Romans, chapter 9, verse 18. So then he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Again, the Bible reproves those who want to argue about the doctrine of election. Therefore, please, before we ask our question. Before we submit our arguments, before we present our objections, we must acknowledge that when we do those things, we are assuming that our puny minds can understand the works of an infinite being. Please, that is an essential, absolutely necessary starting point when it comes to this doctrine. The third observation is as follows, as to how the Bible approaches this subject. It never answers our questions about it. I know it's annoying, but it never answers our questions about it. It does not provide any philosophical explanation. It doesn't attempt to resolve any inherent tensions. It proceeds on the premise that God is boundless. Whereas our minds are small, sinful, and skewed. This is crucial that we grasp these three fundamental observations as to how the Bible handles this subject. I firmly believe it handles this subject like this, just assuming it 
for the following reason. It is because the doctrine of election is so inextricably tied, related to the very nature and character of God. We need to grasp that. That when we enter into the depths of the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, we are really entering into the depths and the heights of the nature of God. The Bible never argues for God. The Bible never really presents an apologetic for God. The Bible simply declares God is. God is not on trial. His nature is not on trial. His character is not on trial. His works are not on trial. And so we must come to these truths, these deep truths, these profound truths, these truths which at times are simply perplexing. We must come to them with humility, understanding that we are approaching the very nature of God. As I affirmed last Sunday, God is unsearchable. Isaiah 44, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let them declare what is to come. Let them declare what will happen. Oh, hear this, please. God is from himself. He is his own first cause. God is for himself. He is his own last end. God is by himself, completely independent. Hear this. There is no proportion between this boundless God and our bound intellect. There is no proportion between this limitless God and our limited mind. There is no proportion between this infinite God and our finite understanding. God does marvelous things without number. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We are but tiny children standing on the beach, trying in vain to hold the ocean in a bucket. Sooner or later, as we inquire into the nature of God and these doctrines in particular, we run into mystery. Far more than we can understand. I want to exhort you. Embrace it. Embrace the mystery. It is cause for worship and adoration. When the individual comes to me and says to me in relation to election predestination, I don't get it. My response is always the same. Now you're getting somewhere. Now you're getting somewhere. You don't get it. You know why you don't get it, my friend? Because you're not God. And that's why I don't understand it in all its complexities and intricacies, in its profundity. We approach what the Scriptures declare concerning these doctrines. We uphold it uncompromisingly, unwaveringly in our commitment to it. Because these truths, in these truths, we enter again into the very being, nature, character of God. It was Augustine, early church father, early 5th century. There he was, the Bishop of Hippo, North Africa. And he was writing his famous treatise on the doctrine of the Trinity. And he was exasperated. 
because he had far more questions than he had answers. And in his exasperation, he threw his little writing utensil, whatever it was he used in those days, across the room, and off he marched out of his room, his study, down to the shore, the beach, the Mediterranean Sea. One of his scribes followed after him, and he could see the perplexity, the exasperation on Augustine's face. And once at the beach, this scribe, with his hands, dug a little hole, small hole in the beach, the sand. He then walked over to the Mediterranean Sea, scooped up some water, ran back, dumped it in the hole. Then he went back to the sea, scooped up a little water, and it's dripping through, escaping through the palms of his hands, his fingers, back to the hole, dumped it in. And this went on and on and on, and Augustine caught his attention. He began staring at the man, and he thought he'd gone nuts, literally. And he said, what are you doing? Are you crazy? And his scribe stopped dead in his tracks, looked him straight in the eyes. You're the one trying to figure out the doctrine of the Trinity. You're the one trying to figure out the doctrine of the Trinity. You're the one who is trying to fit the sea into a tiny little hole. That's got to be the starting point, our friends. We are, my friends, we are dealing with a boundless God. We are speaking of a limitless God. We are speaking of an infinite God, and perhaps some of us here this very day need to hear this. Luther's exhortation to Erasmus in the midst of their heated debate on themes very much like this one, the doctrine of election. Luther, in exasperation, cried out to Erasmus, your God is too small. He's just too small. And that is true of so many today. It's true of the Arminian. It is. His God is too small. His God is too puny. His God is too childish. Because his God is finite. Why? Because he insists on fitting his God into the confines of his mind. And making God subservient to man who he perceives to be sovereign. No, 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 my friend. God is boundless, God is limitless, God is infinite. And if these truths and realities are declared and revealed anywhere, they are revealed in these doctrines, predestination and election. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do with this text, this word? Look at again the outset of verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, that's our term, I've been using the word election, right? I didn't want any surprises. I just put it right out there at the beginning. That I believe, firmly believe, that expression he foreknew is simply a synonym for election. You could put election in there. Those whom he chose, those whom he selected, those whom he elected, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, I need to give a little defense of that, don't I? Because the word is foreknew, foreknowledge, foreknowing. And so a little defense is in order. And I'm well aware of what is popular opinion. Popular opinion when it comes to these subjects within professing Christians, evangelicalism. Let's limit our, our discussion to evangelicalism, however broad it is in our day. Popular opinion is simply this, that election is simply God choosing on the basis of the fact that he foreknows, and so when people see this word, this is immediately how they think, that God foreknows, he foreknew uh, those who would choose to believe in him. 
That's how it's understood. That God foreknew those who would choose to believe in him. And on the basis of the fact that he foreknew that they would choose to believe in him, he chose them. Which basically makes the word election meaningless. It becomes nothing. Well, what is that? What is predestination? It's pointless. One of you came to me last Sunday after the sermon on predestination. You know, I grew up in a, in a church, never heard a sermon in my entire life on predestination. I didn't say it at the time. I'll say it now. The reason you never heard a sermon on predestination is because the word is meaningless in most churches. The word election, they, they don't mean anything. If your paradigm for thinking is this, that God foreknowledge, God foreknew those who would do something. He foreknew that certain individuals would choose to believe in him. And on that basis, he reacted, he responded and chose them. Well, then election and predestination are absolutely, they don't mean anything. God isn't actually doing anything. All he is doing is simply responding to man's sovereignty. Four reasons quickly why that definition of foreknowledge in the context of Romans 8 is indefensible biblically. Here we go. If God's foreknowing is his knowing in advance those who would choose to believe in him, it means no one is saved. It means no one is saved. Because we know, Paul made it clear back in Romans chapter 3, that no one seeks after God. Lord Jesus Christ himself makes it clear in John chapter 6, no one can come to me. Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 8 earlier, the flesh is at enmity with God. If left to himself, no man, no woman would ever believe in God. Would ever choose to believe in God. Why? Because man's will is in bondage to sin. Therefore, if election is simply God foreknowing those who would choose to believe in him, well, then it actually means that no one is saved because no one will believe in him. Second reason why it's indefensible. If God's foreknowing is his knowing in advance those who would choose to believe in him, then there's no such thing as security. My salvation is contingent upon a choice I made. My salvation is contingent upon me exercising what I perceive to be, wrongly perceive my free will. My salvation depends upon me, not upon God. Well, if my salvation depends on an act of my will, guess what? I can unwill it at any time I like. There is no security. If God's foreknowing is his knowing in advance those who would choose to believe in him, then predestination is contingent upon us, which would mean Paul is contradicting himself. Because in the ninth chapter, he will declare it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Fourthly, if God's foreknowing is his knowing in advance those who would choose to believe in him, then salvation is based on works. Where do we get that from? Paul states it clearly in chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. He reminds us there that God saves on the basis of his gracious choice. If it were not on the basis of his gracious choice, then salvation would be based on works. Meaning what? Salvation would be based, election would be based on what God sees in individuals that sets them apart from the multitude. Something they have done in them. 
in order to merit his response, reaction to them. No, please understand, in the context of Romans 8, 29, the object of God's foreknowing isn't what we do or say. The object of God's foreknowing is us, people, those whom he foreknew. Paul is not saying, look, God looked down the corridor of time and saw that we would decide, choose to believe in him. No, he foreknew us just as he predestined us. Just as he called us, justified us, glorified us, it is synonymous with what the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, declares in John 10. I know my own. Well, doesn't he know everybody? Not in the sense he means there. I know my own who are his own. John 17, 2, you have given me authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. John 17, 9, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. John 17, 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory. Prior to creation. Here you have it. The doctrine of election in a sentence. Prior to creation. God chose out of humanity. Foreseen as fallen. Those whom he would give to Christ. He set his love. Covenantal love upon them. Before the foundation of the world. He knew them. Before the foundation of the world, he foreknew us. And all those whom he foreknew, foreloved, elected, he predestined. And all those whom he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Oh, understand, everyone today has a doctrine of election. Everyone has a doctrine of election. All professing Christians, that is. Every branch of the church has a doctrine of election. When it comes to understanding and articulating this doctrine of election, what accounts for the differences is simply this, the condition upon which God chooses. And so in a Roman Catholic understanding of the doctrine of election, the condition upon which God chooses is what? That he foresees those who will receive his grace through the sacraments of the church, and he chooses them. Again, his choice, therefore, is meaningless because it's actually something people do. People receive his grace through the seven sacraments of the church. God foresees that. He chooses them. In a Lutheran understanding, God chooses whom? He chooses all those who do not resist his grace. Very nuanced, very interesting. In a remonstrant Arminian understanding, so we're going back to Jacob Arminius, the late 1500s, early 1600s, he expound, he had this idea that what God chooses on the basis of the fact that he foresees those who will cooperate with his grace. That's the condition. And then Wesleyan, Wesleyan Arminian, so John Wesley in the mid-1700s, he, he developed Jacob Arminius's thought a little bit. And he said, well, no, what it is is this, is that God chooses on the basis of the fact that he foresees those who will believe and persevere. 
And now today, evangelical Arminians, your typical Baptist, Southern Baptist, would believe what? Well, no, here's what, here's what election is. Here's the condition. God foresaw those, all those who would make a decision in a singular moment of time to believe in Jesus. And in that singular moment of time, when they walked down the aisle, or they filled in the car, or they raised their hand, or they said their prayer, all grace was infused into them. And it doesn't matter the fact that they've lived their life however they please since then. The reality is they made a decision in a singular act, in a singular moment of time. God foresaw that they would do that, and on that basis, he chooses them. Am I boring you with this? All of these different views and theories on the doctrine of election, the only thing differing them is what? The condition upon which God chooses. Now, I'm going to use a word. Don't let it frighten you. A Calvinist, there it is, is a little different. Now, I know that word Calvinism, there's a lot of things associated with Calvinism that we would rather not associate with. I'm actually, I agree wholeheartedly with Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Greatest evangelist in the history of the church, Baptist preacher, who said what? Calvinism is simply a nickname for biblical Christianity. So when I use the word Calvinist, that's all I'm talking about is biblical Christianity. In a Calvinistic understanding, there is no condition. That's what sets it apart. There is no condition. There is nothing in the individual. The fact that they participate in the sacraments of the church, resist grace, receive grace, cooperate with believing, persevering, or make some sort of decision at a single moment of time. No, there is nothing that God foresees, some condition in the individual that causes him to choose them. No, the root cause of election resides in God alone. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will harden whom I will harden. There is absolutely nothing in the individual that sets him apart, sets her apart, whereby God reacts in grace. Why? Because we are totally depraved. We are dead in our trespasses and sins and if left to ourselves, we would never choose God. He is no man's debtor, therefore. He does not owe grace, mercy to anyone. He chooses to be merciful. He chooses to be gracious to those upon whom he set this covenantal love before the foundation of the world. In time, he calls them by the Holy Spirit, thereby uniting them with the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby they do believe. Not a single decision confined to a moment of time, but an attitude of life, a way of life. They live by faith and they abide in Christ. They are one with Christ. And in Christ, their sins are forgiven. And in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to them. And they have absolute, this absolute certainty that God will finish the good work which he began in them. Because you know what? This work actually has absolutely nothing to do with them. It is a work of grace. Free, sovereign grace. From beginning to end, oh, my friend, I beg of you, if you think for one moment there is something in you, just something cute and cuddly about you, something you've done, some decision you've made, 
little more, perhaps a little exercise, a little more humility than other people, a little more intelligent than others. If you think there is something in you that is the condition that sets you apart from the masses, whereby God has now bestowed grace upon you, I plead with you, you are one step away from a works-based oriented understanding of the gospel. One step away, my friend. There is nothing in us. There is nothing compelling in us. There is no reason in us. The reason rests and resides in a boundless, limitless, infinite God. Oh, we cannot probe the depths. We cannot cross all the T's nor dot all the I's. But that is no reason to kick it out of the church. That's no reason to disregard it. That's no reason to attempt to explain it away. When we do that, all we end up doing is undermining the very essence of the gospel. Here's the second question I want to wrestle with quickly. What about the balance? You just mentioned the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. Well, didn't I believe? Yes, you did believe, and you do believe, and I believed, and I now believe. Yes, the, the gospel is the proclamation of good news, of salvation. Whosoever will may come. We don't apologize for that. We proclaim it widely. Whosoever will may come. If you're not a Christian, hear this call right now. Whosoever will may come. Your king utters the command right now. Kiss the son lest he become angry. Right now of your own free will. Believe that is a command, and that call goes out to all men. Well, how do we reconcile that with what we've just said concerning the doctrine of election? Here it is in five simple points. Here we go. Here we go. Number one, we must believe in order to please God. Indisputable. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. We must believe in order to please God. Here's truth number two. Everyone who believes in Christ will be saved. Amen. John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Am I moving too quickly? You're getting these. Point one, point two. We must believe in order to please God. Everyone who believes in Christ will be saved. Here's the third point. We're unwilling to believe. We're unwilling to believe. John 6, 44. No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Why can no one come to the Father? Why can no one believe in the Father. Why can no one choose to believe in the Father? For this very simple fundamental reason. No one wants to. No one is willing. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins and is by very nature at enmity with God. There my, therein lies the sinfulness of our sin, friends. Yes, we commit sins, some of them atrocious Yes, we do things. We don't do things. Yes, sins. Yes, we have feelings and thoughts. These are sinful. But here we get to the very sinfulness of sin. That the way we are wired is simply this. We are hostile to God. 
And if left to ourselves, we will never choose God. Why? Here we have it. We hate him by nature. How do I know that? Scripture testifies to it. Just in the context of what I've been saying, you know how I know that? I know that because in the past, whenever I've preached on the doctrine of election and exalted God's just liberty and exalted divine sovereignty, the response at times has been absolutely antagonistic, which tells me what? That when confronted with the real God, not the little Santa Claus figment of the imagination that occupies most people's thoughts, but when confronted with the real God, they actually what? Hate him. How dare you suggest I'm not sovereign? How dare you suggest I'm not actually calling the shots? How dare you suggest I'm so sinful that if left to myself, I couldn't choose God if there was an epiphany right there in front of my face. I never would. How dare you suggest that if I'd been alive when Christ lived, I would have willingly driven one of the nails into his hand? How dare you suggest that I am but a grasshopper in the eyes of sovereign God. Oh, when we begin to speak of God in these terms, we discover what people really think about him. And we discover what? That deep down within there resides a resentment. There resides an animosity. Why? Because our deepest longing is to fulfill the temptation as it was presented to Eve way back in the garden. You will be like God. You will be like God. Fourth point is this. God, therefore, must enable us to believe. Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, granted to us for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That is the effectual calling whereby the Spirit of God gives us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to receive, whereby we willingly believe in the Lord Jesus and are made one with him through faith. Here's the fifth point. Faith, therefore, is a fruit of election. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. As the first fruits to be saved. He chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And so, me, my experience believing in the Lord Jesus, that was the fruit of God's sovereign grace in me. That was his election of me made visible, tangible in time. Third question is this what about the benefit? It's a little polemical, now a little pastoral. What about the benefit? Uh, what about the use, the fruit of this doctrine? How should I make use of it in my life? Uh, I'm going to give you four. I'm going to affirm four things. I, I could go on and on about this. I'm going to limit myself to four. But let me just preface it all with this. As, as, I, as I look back on my, on my Christian sojourn, my walk with the Lord, as I look back, I can pinpoint maybe a half dozen times Moments, real turning points, you know, right? Just real turning points. Uh, moments, events that I still look back on and say, boy, that was, that was something that just changed the course of my life. 
You hear what I'm saying? That just, that just changed the direction I was heading in. One of those reference points that I often refer back to was the late 90s, as when I lived in Portugal, and uh, preaching the word, studying the word, and finally came face to face with this doctrine. Because I was raised in a church where I don't think I ever heard a sermon on predestination. And the more I studied the, the Bible, the more I encountered this word. Not only encountered this word, but encountered this concept, encountered this truth, and I could no longer run and hide. And this was a period of wrestling I went through over the better part of a year, coming to grips with these things, working through questions, studying scriptures, reading up on this. As I look back now, it was one of a half dozen or so moments in my sojourn where everything changed. Uh, my view of God, my understanding of the gospel, my commitment to him, consistency and stability in my walk, even the understanding of the Bible and how things now began to fit together and fall into place. This, as I look back, coming to grips with this truth, as it is revealed and limited to the word of God, was something God used in my life that was simply transformative. Transformative. And let me give you four examples, four examples, four ways in which this is true. And I pray they're true for you. Here's number one. This doctrine shapes our understanding of the gospel. It shapes our understanding of the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if this is not understood, that is, if the doctrine of election is not understood, then neither will the doctrines of justification, sanctification, and glorification be understood. It's a golden chain. Show me the church where they have a poor view of the doctrine of election, and I will show you a church where they've also got it wrong in terms of justification and sanctification. I guarantee it. Absolutely guarantee it. That where this truth is not held to biblically and is not understood rightly and is not given its proper place, you see the whole golden chain disappears. It just disappears. A proper understanding of justification rests on a proper understanding of election. And a proper understanding of sanctification and glorification, every conceivable aspect of the gospel rests on a biblical proper understanding of the doctrine of election. It shapes our understanding of the good news. Secondly, it reveals God's love in a special way. I think this is one of the reasons why it was so liberating for me, going back now almost 20 years. God, the realization that God set his love upon me before the foundation of the world. Because you see, up until that point, I was convinced that God's love for me was based on my performance. Even though I believed in the Lord Jesus... And I would have said, I'm saved by grace. No, 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 no. Deep down within, I had this prevailing mindset, this subtle conviction that would not go away, that in actual fact, God's love for me ebbs and flows depending on how I was feeling, depending on how I was doing, depending on my performance last week, depending on my performance today, that it was all contingent on me. It was based on something conditional in me. Uh, how liberating, how freeing, how revitalizing it was to realize that in love he chose me before the foundation of the world when he knew even then what a rotten sinner I am. And he chose to love me anyway. 
He chose to enter into an eternal covenant, Father, Son, and Spirit, to redeem me and regenerate me and see me safely all the way home. How liberating that is. You know, that God isn't some ogre up there just staring down, browbeating me. Well, how I've just a terrible day. Well, how could he love me? Who knows what I'll get up to tomorrow? Well, is love just going to dissipate? Just ebbs and flows, ups and downs based on me. Oh, what, what an encouraging truth. That God's love for me as one of his children does not depend on me. He set his covenantal love upon me before the foundation of the world. Thirdly, it changes us, the doctrine of election. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Hear this question. Answer it on your own later. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have as a Christian that you did not receive? Octavius Winslow, Christian. The only thing that makes you differ from the vilest being that pollutes the earth is the free Sovereign grace of God. It is all a gift. Oh, this realization elicits gratitude. It cultivates humility. It compels service. It encourages forgiveness. It promotes holiness. The list is endless. If you're struggling with gratitude, you're not a very thankful person, I suggest you study the doctrine of election. If you're proud and you wear your pride like you wear your garments, I suggest you study the doctrine of election. If you're lazy, not involved, bench warmer, I suggest you study the doctrine of election. You're struggling to forgive someone. I suggest, more than suggest, I command you in the name of the Lord, study the doctrine of election. If you are struggling with holiness, sanctification, no desire. You know, you talk about two steps up, forward, one step back. Well, in my case, it's one step forward, two steps back. If you're struggling with the pursuit of holiness, study the doctrine of election. It is transformative because it brings us into the very nature and being and majesty and glory of God, and it compels, it demands a response. It changes us. And fourthly, it comforts us. Here are these words, John 10, 3. The Lord Jesus is speaking. The sheep hear my voice, and I call my own sheep by name. And lead them out. I love those words. I call my own sheep by name. Believer, the Lord Jesus Christ knows your name. He not only knows your name, he knows the very number of hairs upon your head. He not only knows the number of the hairs upon your head, he knows absolutely everything you've ever done in word, thought, deed. He knows absolutely everything you're ever going to do, yet he has claimed you as his 
own. My own hear my voice and they follow me. He knows us by name. He knows everything about us. He's aware of our needs. He's aware of our tears. He's aware of our fears. He's aware of our struggles. He's aware of our worries. Here's a wonderful truth. He delights in us. He finds us delightful, not as we are in and of ourselves, but as we are in him, the Lord Jesus. He finds us delightful. He delights in us as his beloved children. There you have it. It shapes our understanding of the gospel. It reveals God's love in a special way. It changes us and it comforts us. I put it to you as we conclude our study of foreknowledge. I put it to you. This is one of the sweetest doctrines in all of Scripture. That almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, foreknew me. Foreknew me. And foreknowing me, predestined me to be like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And predestinating me. Called me in time by the Holy Spirit, giving me life, regeneration, whereby I believed. And calling me, making me one with Christ, justified me, declared me to be righteous, forgiven, pardoned in his sight. And as far as he's concerned, he's already glorified me. Why? Because it's his unalterable decree that is simply a waiting game. The day is coming when he will perfect and complete in me the work he began before time. Oh, my friends, this is a sweet doctrine. Give it the place it merits. Give it the place it deserves in your thinking. Give it the place it deserves in your life. Pray over it. And you will discover that God will reveal himself to you in a fashion hitherto unknown. As you come face to face with his majesty, his glory, and his free, sovereign grace. Our Father, we pray now for illumination. We praise you for the revelation we have in your word. And we commit its proclamation into your hands. And pray that by the Spirit you would give us a measure of understanding. And with that understanding, give us a taste for these divine truths. Give us an appetite. We pray that our spiritual senses might be piqued. And that we might find joy and satisfaction and peace and contentment in knowing you. And in resting in your gospel. Your good news of salvation toward all who believe. We pray you would come now and bless the preaching of your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen.